Grab your mason jars, strap on that apron. It's time for Canning with the Diva. Making her mark across the globe. Teaching you how to safely preserve delicious recipes. Please welcome your host, Diane Devereaux, the Canning Diva. Well, hey there. Happy canning to you. This is Diane Devereaux, the Canning Diva. You are listening to Canning with the Diva this morning, and I am so happy to bring to you a fun segment about answering your canning questions. Your canning questions are answered here today, and I'm hoping that for those of you who may have had these questions burning on your mind but either didn't take the time to ask or some of you may have been a little timid to ask because you thought, oh my goodness, that's just too silly of a question. I'm hoping that I shed some light on this awesome topic about canning and preserving and answer the questions that were burning on your mind or that you just haven't had the time to ask or maybe never even thought of. So I hope today's segment, uh, through answering the questions that I've received via Facebook, sometimes I'll get them on Pinterest and Instagram, other times I'll get direct emails from people wanting to know specifics on how they can uh, either uh, enhance their canning experience or whether or not they did something right. Many oftentimes it's about changing up a recipe or swapping out a particular food group. So I have a lot of fun questions that I'd love to get to today. Um, And those that I don't get to, maybe we can make it another fun second part or another segment so that I give you all a chance to write in and share with me some of your questions or concerns or experiences and I can bring them up in another show and um, touch on those so that other listeners can have those questions answered that Again, they may not have thought of or had thought of and just didn't get a chance to ask. So this will be a lot of fun. I encourage you, if you are listening in and you do have some additional questions that I haven't touched on, please feel free to email me. You may do so at Diane, that's D-I-A-N-E, at canningdiva.com. If you follow me on Facebook, please do so. That's at facebook.com forward slash canningdiva. If you follow me, you're welcome to message me your questions or post them right on the on the news feed, and I'll get back to you as fast as I can. And then, of course, I'd like to gather up these questions and bring them to light in a fun radio segment, so keep that in mind. Otherwise, you're totally welcome to, if you happen to see something, whether that be on Pinterest at Canning Diva or Instagram at Canning Diva or Twitter at Canning Diva, uh, feel free to post your questions there. I love to interact on a daily basis with those that are, you know, choosing this path of a a more fun, organic lifestyle uh, from the garden to the jar. And um, there's a lot of different social media outlets I'm on. So feel free to interact right away when you see something come come up and I'll do my best to interact uh, within that instant or within a a timely manner. All right, so let's get started. Um, Some of the questions I've been collecting over, well, the last two years have to do with some of the basics as well as some of the more, um, I guess you could say, intricate type questions that revolve around very recipe specific or, hey, can I use this particular food group? So if some of these uh, questions you already know the answer, no problem. You might learn a little something new or a different spin on something you already know. 
And um, feel free to grab a notepad and pen because you'll be surprised at some of the levels of information I'm able to give by the question being asked. Because again, even though I teach this um, on a daily basis and I give demonstrations, I, I do public speaking, there are often times where I just don't have enough time to get to all of the questions or be able to you know, dive super, super deep on a particular topic. So this will be a lot of fun, especially for those of you that are new to the craft or have been canning for a long time. Um, it's, you, you always learn something new. Even I have learned new things, and this is something I've been doing for decades. So, all right, first question here. Um, this one came from, let's see here. This one came from the website. It was posted to me on one of my recipes. And the question is, I made pickle relish, and the stuff wasn't packed tight enough so there is juice at the bottom of some of my jars. No air, and it's sealed correctly. It just happens to look 7 eighths full. Is this normal? The same thing happens when I do my apples. So awesome question, and the answer is yes, this is normal. When we process foods, no matter what the food is, whether it's pickles or apples or strawberries, there's a certain level of air trapped into every food particle. And this is where hot packing and, and cold packing or raw packing come into play. When things are preheated, we allow the air to escape the food source and um, it helps kind of shrink it up and allow you to pack more in a jar. When things are raw packed and we're putting a hot brine over the top of the food, the shrinkage is taking place while in the jar. Now, I didn't get specifics on how this was packed or how this was cooked, so I can say this. For those items that are hot packed, for instance, a salsa uh, or a relish, they are brought to a boil on a stovetop, and they're typically boiled for five minutes or under prior to packing in a jar. Because we are also allowing the air to escape in addition to the liquid from the particular food group, we will start to see liquidity in our recipe. And there's nothing wrong with what you did here. It's very common to have that liquid separate and stay at the bottom because it's heavier. Things that are lighter are going to rise. And what I tell people to do if this does happen to you, sometimes just turning and tilting the jar when you're washing it before storing it will naturally mix those two components together, therefore creating you know more of a solid-looking um, texture in that jar. Otherwise, just stir the contents when you open the jar to eat it and, and that'll do just fine. It'll actually blend everything together. That often happens with my strawberry salsa. You'll see about an inch of liquid on the bottom and then all the salsa on the top, and that's very common and normal. Many times, as it sits in storage, it'll naturally disperse all by itself. So there's no nothing wrong here. The food is totally fine. As long as that lid has sealed, you're, you're good to go. So excellent question. You're doing a great job. And by all means, keep up the hard work. Another question I received was, do you blanch and peel your tomatoes before canning them, or do you just peel them? Excellent question, and I usually get this question on a weekly basis, especially when I'm teaching my Canning 101 classes. Now the answer is, I do blanch traditional canning tomatoes because the skin is very thick, 
and it's very chewy. And the last thing I want to do when I create a recipe and I preserve these, these tomatoes is to have someone chomping at the bit trying to digest something uh, that is, you know, quite obnoxious. It's like shoe leather at times. And it depends on how large that tomato gets. If, you're, if your canning tomatoes are quite large, they're the size of, of softballs, um, you definitely have a thicker skin because it had to adapt as it grew larger. So I do blanch those. Now, for those of you that have made some of my recipes already, you will find that I often call for Roma tomatoes to be used. And the reason is because you don't need to peel and blanch them. The Roma tomato skin is extremely thin and very easy to eat and digest. So you might as well just leave that on and now you're getting all the vitamin content that is in the skin. You're getting that into every recipe, okay? Now, if you would prefer to blanch all of your tomatoes, no matter which type that you're purchasing, my biggest tip to you would be to create a crosshair on the bottom of that tomato and remove the, um, you know, the stem top portion. Just go ahead and haul that out. You don't have to cut off the entire top. Just haul out that center. And when you blanch them for about a minute in the boiling water, then throw them into that ice cold water in the sink after the minute is up, that crosshair starts to naturally unfold and it simplifies the process so much so that literally when you're picking up that tomato to actually pull the, at the crosshair, it naturally starts to fall off all on its own. So blanching doesn't have to be a daunting task. And a lot of individuals prefer to blanch because they cannot always get their hands on organic tomatoes. So most of your pesticides and, and chemicals are in that skin, especially again, if they're not organic. So the best way to ensure you're not getting chemicals into your food is to go ahead and blanch them, whether it be a canning tomato or aroma. Okay, next question. When you're making your chili, you mentioned using rehydrated dried beans. If you use canned beans, do they get mushy when reheating? Now this is an excellent question because yes, I do preserve a lot of foods in a variety of methods and one of those is just typical dry storage. So I will purchase dried beans and I will store them in airtight containers and then rehydrate them based on what recipe I'm creating. And in my chili recipe, you will notice, I do offer to you to utilize your home canned beans or dried beans. So there's no right or wrong way. And the answer is, if you're using home canned beans or even canned beans from the store, they seem to, to weather the processing just fine. They don't get mushy when you're reheating that chili to serve and eat. Now I will say, if you did not consume all of your home canned chili on the first go about when you're reheating and serving it to your family, and you're actually having to store some of that back in the refrigerator, I have found that upon reheating it on the stovetop or in the microwave, they do tend to get a little bit mushier because you're looking at it as it's probably going to be the third or fourth time it's being reheated. But that is commonplace no matter uh, whether you've made that fresh batch of chili or you've home canned the chili. That's just kind of how it goes. The food eventually will start breaking down upon heating and reheating and heating and reheating. That's just normal. But um, honestly, there's no right or wrong way. I think I did modify my chili recipe. If you go to canningdiva.com, under the recipes tab, 
you'll see a section that says one quart meals or meals in a jar and that area will I did modify the chili recipe I gave you specifics on using rehydrated dried beans or your home canned beans so have fun with that recipe it's delicious and definitely a hearty meal to enjoy in the winter months I highly encourage those of you who have not invested into a pressure canner to do so um, a pressure canner you would want it to be about a 23 quart in size nowadays they do make them taller so you can double stack your pints so I encourage you to also pick up a second canning rack that goes on the bottom uh, traditionally most of the pressure canners come with a rack but purchase a second one so that way you can double stack your pints and the benefit of having this pressure canner on hand is the plethora of recipes that you can now create things that have to process for a great length of time at a higher temperature require that pressure canner and it's the only way we're going to kill off harmful bacteria then lending the way to allowing us to store things long term okay now this is a fun question and a, a very good question that allows me to d dive a little bit deeper onto what what constitutes a lid sealing and what constitutes a safe canning practice so the question is do I have to process my jars when the lid already made a popping noise very very good question I love this question because it breaks that misnomer of well the lid sealed so the food's safe so I'm just gonna put it on my pantry shelf or I often hear well I just fill my lids with really hot boiling you know mixture whether it be salsa or what have you I just fill my jars I put the sterilized lid and ring on there and I flip it over and the next morning all my lids have sealed and so I just put it right in the pantry a lot of individuals seem to want to skip that processing that that heat processing step and I must impress upon all of you heat processing your home canned goods it's not an option it's a must you want to follow the recipes instructions and you want to process it accordingly someone took a lot of time energy and effort to do the math and the science behind what it takes to properly kill off bacteria in the presence of acid as well as time and temperature and heat processing is essential for destroying the naturally occurring bacteria found in food choosing to not process your jars properly is unsafe and could very well render that food dangerous to consume so look at it this way oftentimes when I have to purchase jars at the store I will get home and I will unwrap that package and I will find that a lot of those lids have already sealed sitting right on the store shelf and there's a variety of factors that cause that to happen sometimes it could be temperature fluctuations moisture in the air um, sometimes because of how it was placed or maybe they were stacked on top of each other vacuum seals were created and those lids sealed with nothing in the jar just sitting on the store shelf now does that mean that it, that the contents the air essentially is safe no it just meant that the that the lid came into a variety of factors and created a seal because again moisture and temperature told it to do so the lid has a rubber compound on it and when it comes in contact with those variables as well as the surface of that rim it can naturally seal all on its own it doesn't mean it's a very good seal 
but it has sealed enough to where you can pick up that jar with that lid and you actually, when you have to go to use that lid, it, you kind of got to put a little bit of uh, elbow grease into it to get that lid off of there. So I say to you, just because the lid seals and it makes that popping noise does not mean your food is, food is safe. There are many a times, because I'm creating a triple batch of something, that by the time I got to that last half of the processing stage, those jars sat on the shelf, or excuse me, sat on my countertop for a good, you know, hour before I could actually get to them because of the, you know, the many batches I'm doing in and out of that water bather. Typically, those jars waiting to be processed all sealed. But I know better than to assume that because that lid sealed, the food is safe. They all still had to go through the heat processing, whether it be a water bath or a pressure canning session. They all still had to wait their turn and go through that heat processing in order to store long term. Now, if your lid sealed and you weren't planning on storing it on your pantry shelf, you were going to eat it within the next few days, by all means, pop that jar in the refrigerator and eat it within seven days. But the benefit to home canning and preserving and using our two types of processing is that we are able to store these items without cold refrigeration and we can put them on our pantry shelves for over a year. That is the true benefit of storing long term, which is where heat processing is essential. Okay, another question I got is, can I reuse my store-bought glass jars for canning? They once had pickles in them and the lid still will seal if I turn and twist it super tight. Well, good question. And even though I know people do this, whether it be their sauerkraut jars, their pickle jars, their mixed bean jars, um, yes, that lid will seal if you squeeze it real tight, but I would never recommend using any jar that has not been originally designed for home canning use. I personally cannot recommend it. If it's something that you've been able to conquer and do time after time, year after year, without any problems, any spoilage, then I don't want to tell you to fix something that's not broken. However, I personally cannot advocate for you to reuse something that has not been designated for home canning use and reuse. Mason jars made from approved manufacturers like Ball and Kerr, and uh, as well as some of the Kilner jars, uh, those Kilner jars are from the UK. They're awesome, and they still have that same type of twisting top like a commercially canned jar would be. It's that same principle. Um, I would not recommend use anything that is not safe for home canning. So Kilner, Bar, Ball, excuse me, <laughs> all of those jars have been tested time and time again. The glass compounds have been made to withstand the recycling and the reuse and the reheating. Um, those are your tried and true recycled sources. The shape and the volume capacity of these glass mason jars also comply with well-established processing methods and recipes. Microorganisms that spoil foods and cause illness may still be present when using unapproved home canning jars. And think about it, they don't follow the traditional standards. Recipes are often spoke of in half pints, pints, and quarts. And Ball and Kilner and Kerr all follow those standard methods. When you start deviating from those standard methods, you now are playing with the processing times. And that is what lends way to something that could be very dangerous if you're not adequately killing off bacteria. Because now the volume of the contents in that jar 
has also changed. Okay, one more question here before we wrap up today's segment. And I just want to thank all of you who write in and who message me. It has just been uh, a wonderful way for me as a home canner and as the canning diva to interact with you and share my love and passion and knowledge for this awesome craft. And it really helps, I think, um, not only us stay connected, but alleviate some of the fears and misnomers that are out there revolving around this, this time-honored tradition. And so I, I really appreciate the questions because I want to encourage all of you to pick up this craft, make it something that is fun and easy, and find ways to incorporate it into your everyday life. Because as you'll hear me often say, from the garden to the jar, and then it also goes to the plate. I want you to see this as being a, a fun, well-rounded way to feed your family, to be prepared, to live a self-sustaining life, and to keep increasing the volume and the recipe types in which you um, you know start start adding to to your cookbook or your home arsenal. I like to call it I like to call it my my canning arsenal because that's kind of how I look at it. You know, I have an arsenal of food, I have an arsenal of supplies, and I want to make sure I'm ready and able to do whatever it takes to keep my family sustained and healthy. Okay, last question here, and this is huge for those of you listeners that are all around the globe. Um, the question is, I live 3,500 feet above sea level. How many minutes do I add to the time if I'm water bathing? So this is a very big question, a very, very important question, and something that many of us who post recipes or create recipes, you know, we don't break down every sea level. We just give you the terms in which the standard sea level is and and for me I'm I'm just at normal I I don't I don't have to, I'm not elevated so I don't have to add anything and so most of my recipes will say you know process the strawberry salsa pints uh, you know for pints at uh, 15 minutes or 20 minutes you know I just give it to you in general terms so this was a very good question that I wanted all of you to hear the answer and I'll, I'll read the question again and I'll give you the answer because this is huge at keeping you all safe while you're home canning and preserving. Okay, the question again was, I live 3,500 feet above sea level. How many minutes do I add to the time if I'm water bathing? And here's the answer. You want to add 10 additional minutes to the normal processing time. And here's why. When you live 1,001 to 3,000 feet above sea level, you add an additional five minutes. When you live 3,001 to 6,000 feet above sea level, you add an additional 10 minutes. When you're 6,001 to 8,000 feet above sea level, you add 15 additional minutes. And when you're 8,001 to 10,000 feet above sea level, you add an additional 20 minutes. It takes longer for you to um, keep that boiled temperature to kill off the bacteria. So make sure you know how many feet above sea level you live, you know, where you're located. Make sure you know where that's, you know, where you live and what uh, feet above sea level that, that that requires. And then using that chart or that guide I just gave you, add the appropriate amount of minutes to your water bathing processing time. And I'll pick up with uh, where we left off. The, the question I received was, I live 3,500 feet above sea level. 
how many minutes do I add to my processing time if I'm water bathing? And that was a very good question because I know most of you listeners are all throughout the globe, not just in my home state of Michigan. So um, I definitely thought this question should be repeated. And then I'm going to follow up after I answer. I'm going to follow up with the same idea of thinking when it comes to pressure canning. So now I'm going to read through this chart. So feel free to grab a pen and paper and jot this down. So for those of you that are driving right now and you're unable to jot this information down, no worries. It is also available on my website at canningdiva.com. So you have lots of resources, uh, but feel free to break this down and just take a mental note, especially if you already know what uh, sea level height you live in. So for those of you that are 1,001 to 3,000 feet above sea level, you must add an additional five minutes of processing time to your traditional water bath recipes. Those of you that are 3,001 to 6,000 feet above sea level, add an additional 10 minutes. So for that individual who wrote in and wanted to know how much time she needs to add, the answer for her was 10 additional minutes because she was 3,500 feet above sea level. If you're 6,001 to 8,000 feet above sea level, add 15 minutes to your processing time. And for those of you that are 8,001 to 10,000 feet above sea level, you must add an additional 20 minutes of processing time when you're water bathing. Now, the same rule of thumb applies when you are pressure canning. And so I received shortly thereafter answering this question, I received an additional question wanting to know why do I need to add additional time just because I live at a higher altitude? Well, the answer to that is simple. Water boils at a lower temperature that is less effective for killing harmful bacteria. So all of this bacteria and microorganisms require a longer processing time because it takes you know, longer uh, to get that, that water temperature up and to be effective. So because it boils at a lower temperature, traditional uh, temperature for boiling water is 212 degrees, okay? And because we rely on traditional recipes stating, you know, an X amount of time in water bathing, it's because that has all been calculated at 212 degrees. When you live in a higher altitude, water boils at a lower temperature, making it less effective. So for those of you where water boils now at 190 degrees, that's awesome if you're trying to heat something up quick and you need your water to boil fast. However, all the math has been done at 212 degrees, so you need to add additional time to keep your food safe. That also focuses now on the next question that I received. It's so funny. when. When I get Facebook followers that ask these questions and I do my best to post an answer either right away or in a shorter, you know, short time frame, I love it when people start seeing in the post the answer and then it prompts another question and then another question. So this was a really fun Facebook post that started turning into some really awesome dialogue. And for those of you that aren't following me on Facebook, you may do so at Canning Diva. So um, you can search for me under Canning Diva on Facebook or you can go to facebook.com forward slash Canning Diva and you'll find me there. You can also sign up for my newsletter right on my Facebook page and you also can start to see some of the fun events and postings that I have as well as yummy recipes and fun pictures. So it's, it's a lot of um, 
interactive, fun, and again, these questions all started snowballing uh, with just asking that first question about, you know, the sea level and how many minutes do I add? So the third question I got asked during all of this fun, you know, stimulated conversation about time and temperature and altitude was this. Do I need to increase processing time in higher altitudes when I'm pressure canning? And the answer is yes. For foods processed in a pressure canner, processing times remain the same, but the pounds of pressure are what increases. So for those of you with a weighted gauge pressure canner, you can control the pressure precisely. However, the biggest disadvantage is, is you cannot correctly or precisely gauge that pounds of pressure for higher altitudes. So the USDA states a weighted gauge pressure canner being used in higher altitudes above 1,000 feet must be operated at pressures of 10 instead of you know, quantities of pressure at 5. So, or 15 instead of 10 PSI. So basically what they're saying is, if the recipe says 10 pounds of pressure, um, you want to now elevate that to 15 pounds of pressure. Because you don't have a lot of options with a weighted gauge pressure canner, you really only have those three circles on there where it says five, 10, or 15. The best way to ensure that your food is going to be safe above 1,000 feet, so that could be anything from above 1,000 feet to 10,000 feet, you basically want to just have it at, put it on the little dial that says 15, and so that nodule is now at 15 PSI instead of 10. So the rule of thumb is to just increase it because sadly with a weighted gauge pressure canner, there's no way to really tell if you're at 11 or 14 pounds of pressure. So to be safe, you just have it at 15 pounds of pressure. Now for dial gauge pressure canners, increasing the PSI is a bit different. So if your traditional canning recipe says 10 pounds of pressure, there's kind of that rule of thumb now with the, um, the various sea level ranges. So just like we spoke about with water bathing, how at certain sea levels you're adding five minutes or 10 minutes or what have you, the same rule applies now, but it's done in PSI. So let me read through the chart so that you can understand based on where you live, how many pounds of pressure you now need to process a recipe. So if you are at zero to 2,000 feet above sea level, you want to make sure your recipe is now being processed at 11 pounds of pressure. And for those of you that have taken my classes or have heard me speak publicly, I always tell individuals, give yourself a little bit of wiggle room. It's very hard to keep a dial gauged pressure canner exactly at 10 pounds of pressure. So I tell people to process their home canned goods at 11 to 12 pounds of pressure. That little bit of extra temperature isn't gonna do any harm to your food. It's actually gonna help you maintain a nice consistent level of pressure because here's the kicker. If your recipe calls for 10 pounds of pressure, or in this case, if you're you know up to 2,000 feet above sea level, 11 pounds of pressure, and you let it dip below that, you now have to start your timer all over again. So it's best to just stay a little bit above than it is to be anywhere below. So for those of you at 2,001 to 4,000 feet above sea level, you want to maintain 12 pounds of pressure. If you are 4,001 feet to 6,000 feet above sea level, 13 pounds of pressure is adequate. If you are 6,001 to 8,000 feet above sea level, 
you want to maintain 14 pounds of pressure. And for those of you at 8,001 to 10,000 feet above sea level, you want to have 15 pounds of pressure registered, or I would say give yourself that wiggle room, about 16 to 17 pounds of pressure. It's okay to be up a pound. It's not okay to be below a pound. All right, now, the other fun part, again, about this conversation and dialogue on Facebook is it prompted another question about traditional recipes requiring 10 pounds of pressure. If you aren't in a sea level area that you know is elevated, why can't we just process everything at 15 pounds of pressure? Well, here's the main reason. If I here in Michigan were to process all of my recipes at 15 pounds of pressure, and again, I'm not really above any sea level, I'm just like normal average Joe over here, 11 to 12 pounds is fine. It's that little bit of wiggle room that keeps you safe and prevents you from having to stare at that darn dial for hours on end. If you did everything at 15 pounds of pressure, you're now going to start experiencing liquid loss. Liquid loss is because you've got that now upwards of 250 to 255 degrees, and at our altitude, that is just way too much. We already know at regular boiling temperature, which is 212 degrees, things are gonna be active, and we call it a rolling boil. So things are already moving and bubbling and spitting. And in pressure canning, it's gonna be higher than 212 degrees, and so we only want to have that food move and, and swell and um, elevate based on the amount of headspace we gave it. If we get it much hotter than what the recipe or our elevation or the food source requires, we are now gonna experience a lot of liquid loss. So all of that food that was in that jar with the required amount of headspace now escapes the jar, winds up in the pressure canner, and when the jars seal, if they seal, because again, we're getting all that food onto the rim, which prevents a seal with the lid. If the jar does seal, we are now looking at a jar of now three inches less than what we started. And so we're kind of wasting our food. So it's there is a method to the madness. There's a lot of science and math involved into why we process things at the rate of temperature and time that we do. So keep in mind, just because 15 pounds of pressure is safe for the weighted gauge pressure canner, doesn't mean it's adequate and, and okay to do for the dial gauge. You can do so, but just be prepared. A lot of your hard work and food is gonna wind up in the pressure canner and not the jar. We're gonna hear right now from Doreen Dannison. Uh, she emailed, uh, or excuse me, messaged a question on Facebook regarding one of her recipes that she loves to make on the stovetop. She was curious to know if she can now preserve it and if the ingredients would still, would still suffice. So here's her question. I make a stew with dehydrated corn and let that cook usually overnight and add lamb or beef meat cubed the next morning, and then I let it cook further. I also add beef broth. My question is, can I can the stew that was made from dehydrated corn? Well, Doreen, the answer is yes, you certainly can. The benefit of using your dehydrated corn is twofold. Obviously, that is something that you had on hand and dehydrated and were able to preserve and utilize throughout the year. And it's wonderful if you have the time, and it sounds like this takes quite a bit of time to make this delicious recipe, it's wonderful if you have that on the ready. 
Now, the benefit of home canning and preserving is now you no longer have to put in those additional overnight hours to properly soften that dehydrated corn. The benefit of using a pressure canner is it will naturally soften and tenderize the foods because anything that contains meat, whether it's cooked or raw, must process according to the rule of thumb. So for your beef stew or lamb stew recipe using this dehydrated corn, the rule of thumb doesn't change. If you're canning in pints, you're going to process your stew at 10 pounds of pressure for 75 minutes. If you're canning in quarts, you're going to process that, that in a pressure canner for t at 10 pounds of pressure for 90 minutes. Because there's beef broth and beef byproduct or lamb byproduct, because it's a meat product, we have to follow that rule of thumb. And because there's not a lot of acidity to offset some of those lower acid foods, now we have to rely on the, the full processing time in the pressure canner. And what I find, when I make my chili, I will often, if I, if I don't have access to fresh green peppers, I will throw in my dehydrated green peppers, my bell peppers, and um, I don't allow that to sit overnight. I actually just make my stew, bring it to a boil, let it boil for about five minutes, and then I fill my jars. So the advantage of pressure canning is now you don't have to cook everything overnight or in a stock pot, uh, letting it sit to rehydrate, same with beans. You can go ahead, make this dish, even though that dehydrated corn is a little bit tough, it will soften during processing. Excellent question. So I really hope that Doreen, by asking this question, she's prompted many of you to start incorporating some of your dehydrated items into your meals that you are now pressure canning or processing so that you can set them up on your shelves to enjoy maybe during the winter months or to take with you um, on excursions or camping, you name it. My next question I received is from a local follower. Her name is Becky Howard. Becky has attended several of my demonstrations at Riley's Ace Hardware, and she has become an avid canner. And it's very exciting to see, and I make this available to everyone, once you start canning and taking my tips or classes or demonstrations, I give everyone my business card and make myself very available because I don't want to leave you hanging, especially if I'm out here promoting, you know, for those of you that have always wanted to start canning and I'm here to help and guide you, I don't want to leave you hanging when you're right in the middle of a recipe or something's going on. So I make my Facebook page uh, very available and the messaging abilities on it are awesome because um, it allows you to ask these tough questions or uh, oftentimes you're in the middle of something and you just need to fire off a quick, quick, uh, hey, is this, is this the right way to do it or is this okay? And uh, Becky has been a phenomenal um, uh, individual that we have lots of dialogue and she's really doing a great job learning the art of home canning. And so one of her questions of recent was, I just purchased my American canner and the lid was stuck, but I finally got it off. I'm learning how to make this canner work for me and I'm having lots of fun. When I took the lid off, there was still plenty of water in the canner, but the lids on the jars had a dry white film on them. It almost looked like calcium from the water. I hadn't seen this before and I need to make sure that the jars are still okay. They process the usual one hour and 15 minutes, but I didn't know if my getting the lid stuck is what caused the film. Okay, excellent question. And you'll often find this uh, in your pressure canners as well as your water bathers. 
depending on what type of water you have, whether it's city water or well water, all of our water comes from the ground at some point, uh, whether it's processed, just depends on your area. But um, there are still minerals within our water. And the more heavier in minerals your water, obviously the more deposits you're gonna have onto your glass jars. So what I tell individuals is yes, the film is fine, Go ahead, let your jars cool that 12 to 24 hours, and once your lids have sealed, take your rings off, and just in the sink with a warm washcloth, you know, some dish soap, just go ahead and wash the, the uh, jars off. If the film is still pretty stuck, add a little bit of vinegar to your washcloth, and it'll come right off. To avoid this happening in the future, when you're placing your jars in your canner, whether it be a pressure canner or a water bather, add a couple tablespoons of vinegar to the water and it'll prevent those uh, calcium-like buildups to happen onto your jars. It actually keeps them nice and clean by adding that little bit of vinegar to the water. So no worries, everything is fine. None of that buildup did any harm to your food source. It's just very unpleasant to look like, uh, to look at, excuse me, and you can avoid it from happening again by just adding vinegar to the water. All right. Excellent question, Becky. I love them. Keep them coming. And with that, I did get one more. And this happens to be revolving around um, using one of my products called Canning Gel. So for those of you that are unfamiliar with uh, my product called Canning Gel, it's available on my website at canningdiva.com. Um, canning Gel is essentially clear gel. What I did is I repackaged clear gel into smaller, more user-friendly uh, packages and so this is a 1.5 pound container it allows you to keep that awesome gelling uh, capability and capacity when you're making preserves and jellies and jams as well as pie fillings um, you can add it to relishes so your relish isn't too runny you can thicken your soups and your stews and the benefit of using it in home canning is it works very well with high temperatures and highly acidic foods and it also stays nice and thick and gelled upon heating and reheating, which is huge because you cannot use standard cornstarch or regular you know, store-bought cornstarch in home canning. It breaks up, it breaks down, it gets clumpy and very unpleasant looking. So uh, the benefit of having canning gel on your, your shelf and, and having it at, you know, at your fingertips when you're home canning is huge. It's the only thing that is FDA and USDA approved for home canning. Now her question was, you know, I purchased some of your canning gel and my recipe that I'm working uh, with says I'm to use Sure Gel. Now is Sure Gel the same type of thing, Diane? I'm going to be canning strawberry pie filling and I want to make sure that I'm using nothing but your canning gel. Thank you for all of your help. Canning gel is not the same as Sure Gel, but I should probably have worded it, you know, maybe reverse. Sure Gel will never be canning gel. Sure Gel is essentially pectin. And pectin, unfortunately, breaks down over time. And the best way, the best thing to use like pectin for maybe would be like your, your jams and jellies because they typically don't have to uh, process for more than maybe 10 minutes. But the way to alleviate having you know, three different types of thickening agents on hand is to just focus on one, and canning gel is interchangeable. 
Pectin will break down and isn't recommended for pie fillings because a pie filling has to boil on the stovetop for X amount of time prior to putting it in the jars. Then it's typically processed for 15 to 25 minutes depending on which fruit is being used. Then from there, the pie filling, after it sits on your pantry shelf for say a few months, it's going to be reheated because now you're making a pie with it. Pectin will not withstand that amount of high temperature and the reheating and heating again, okay? So when you go to make a pie using pectin, it's gonna gush out and it won't keep its nice pretty shape. With canning gel, it will help your pie filling maintain that shape and it is probably the most highly recommended thickening agent when making your homemade pies. So definitely, if the recipe called for sure gel, you can use the canning gel. Canning gel can also be used in traditional baking as well as cooking. So it's a very versatile product. And don't ever feel um, you know, bad about using it with your jams and jellies. Um, I will often be able to make a, a, an excellent strawberry jam and I can reduce the sugar. So for those of you interested in um, watching your sugar intake or if, unfortunately if you have uh, diabetes and you have to really now monitor the sugar intake, you can still make your preserves and jams and jellies by using the canning gel because now, take for instance that traditional strawberry jam. Traditional strawberry jam requires like six or seven cups of sugar. By using canning gel, you only need now to add a cup and a half of sugar and about seven to eight tablespoons of the canning gel because you're relying on the fruit itself to make the jam, not the sugar. So for those of you interested in doing so, you can head to my website for some delicious recipes. Go to canningdiva.com. The recipe tab breaks everything into categories and you'll see there where it says jams and jellies. Look for the recipe that says less sugar berry jam and you'll find ways to utilize that that canning gel. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to visit me at canningdiva.com or on Facebook at Canning Diva. Until next week. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Canning with the Diva. For tips, recipes, and techniques, please visit us online at canningdiva.com.